I remember a grad school professor once saying there are two topics people will consistently lie about when polling experts come knocking, religion and sex. Did you go to church last month? Well, no, but I meant to, so yes. Have you had sex with one or more partners this month? Have you looked at pornography in the last week? For the last year, have you been sexually abstinent? A lot can depend on what a person thinks the answers ought to be. Christine Emba has just written a fascinating new book, diving directly into these questions and many more. Her nine-chapter book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, opens with this moral quote, it's only by asserting one's humanness every time in all situations that one becomes someone rather than something. That, after all, is the core of our struggle. Christine has written since 2015 at the Washington Post, where she's the ideas and opinions columnist. She holds a BA in public and international affairs from Princeton University, and previously was the Hilton Kramer Fellow in Criticism at the New Criterion, and prior to that, the deputy editor at the Economist's Intelligence Unit. In this provocative book, Christine stirs the pot, raising profound questions about meaning and connection, sexuality and even spirituality, as she traces shifting generational views of sex and sexual practices in America. Joining Christine today is Kimberly June Miller, a licensed marriage and family therapist and a former Harvard chaplain who's written her own book on relationships and healthy sexuality. Kim's book, Boundaries for Your Soul, argues that we can calm the chaos within through a wiser understanding of internal family systems and boundaries. So how should we think about sex? Is it more like a game of tennis or having a sandwich or scratching a physical itch? Or is it deeper than that, more like taking communion at church or a barometer in the midst of a permanent relationship between two souls or the glue that holds together two spouses? Before diving in, here's Christine on the balance she calls her readers to really think more about, to give you a flavor for her book. There's usually a reason why we downplay our goals. It's often because we don't think that they're achievable or because we don't want to sign ourselves up for the struggle. When it comes to sex, our desire is often strong and unruly enough that we would rather indulge it without complication, without grappling with what it might mean. Intimacy makes claims on us, after all. Embodiment is, in a real way, a trap. We can't exchange our bodies for other ones. We can't leave ourselves. A transcendent experience might leave a mark. We might be making light of sex because we sense that it matters. If sex is solely about the performance of the physical act, you can practice at it, get better, and even if you have a one-off flubbed encounter, it's not so bad. You can find better partners to do it with if one doesn't work out. You can keep on searching and learning new tricks until you find your groove. But if sex is about something larger, care, connectedness, the human experience writ large, not getting it right might mean there's something wrong with you. If we admit that all these things are possible, we are responsible for them. In the end, being bad at having sex, it's much less frightening than being bad at being a person. But if the extreme pleasures and risks of sex are real, even if they exist only in some of our encounters, we should be taking sex seriously, or at least more seriously than we do now. 
Sex is just an act, yes, but it's one with more meaning than we give it credit for. It's an act that touches something deep and intrinsic in the human person, with the potential, at least, for the creation of something greater than the individuals involved, up to and including another human being created between them. I think that many of us want something more from sex than what we have been willing to acknowledge. Pleasure, yes, but also closeness, mutuality, even a sense of the sacred. It's also likely that we've been asking too much from it. Self-definition, self-actualization, total fulfillment. A new balance needs to be struck. How do we accord sex a privileged position in our lives without either exalting it as the ultimate expression of agency, a personal achievement, a level unlocked, or walling it off as something purely holy and ineffable? Thank you so much, Josh, for having me here. And Christine, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I truly enjoyed reading your book. It's so beautifully written. You have such a talent for crafting words. And I really hope it's widely read because it's such a valuable contribution. And I have so much to say about it because it was such a, a rich reading experience. You do a masterful job of uh, diagnosing the problems in our culture and analyzing what it is that we need to be talking about right now. And then you're courageously and eloquently raising this topic. And I love how you call the book a provocation because it indeed is a really wonderful conversation starter for parents to have this conversation about sex with their children and for friends to talk together. And clearly it needs to be talked about more. And in the past week, as I've been reading your book and I've been sharing it with other people, everyone I've talked to about it, just says, oh, this is such an important topic. And they so everyone has something to say about this book. And I imagine you've had a very interesting year or two writing the book. And this period of time in your life is, is very rich because of all the conversations that you're having. So I do want eventually in the book to get to a topic that was on my mind as I was reading through it, which is um, in addition to the very thoughtful analysis and diagnosis of the problems in our culture you offer prescriptive notes from time to time. And one of the things that you do is you talk about the importance of going beyond consent to actually loving the other and willing the good of the other, evoking St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle. And I wanted to just explore with you even what that means to will the good of the other. And But before I do that, I, and I know we'll get to it, I just wanted to ask you about yourself and start off on just a personal note and just ask you if it's all right with you and if you're willing to share just more about what brought you to this place of wanting to write this book right now. Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for <laughs> such a kind introduction and a kind read of the book. It has been a labor, but hopefully of, of love. And, you know, I subtitled it a provocation because I hope that it would do exactly that, provoke people to have these conversations with their friends, with their family, with people around them, because I do feel that there is such an appetite to talk about our confusions, especially when it comes to sex, but many people don't feel that they can. They don't feel like there's an opportunity or a place to do so. One of my sort of key motivations in writing Rethinking Sex was to tell the people who I spoke to over the years as I was interviewing that, you know, the fact that you feel that something is off about our sexual culture doesn't make you crazy. 
you're not crazy. There is something going on (laughs) and we need to talk about it, not just try and deal with it ourselves and keep our hurts quiet. So I'm really glad that it's doing that. And that kind of brings me to your question of why I started this book and what was interesting about it for me. I'm an opinion columnist at the Washington Post, and my beat is ideas and society, which pleasantly kind of means a little bit of everything, sometimes not pleasantly as I'm struggling to figure out which idea to focus on for a column. But especially during the Me Too moment, you know, I'm interested in writing about culture, about society, about ethics, and sort of how we relate to each other on both a micro and macro scale. And I was covering Me Too, writing about questions of gender and equality and how far we've come and how far we haven't. And the Me Too moment to me revealed that many of the questions that we thought the sexual revolution and feminist movements would answer have not been answered. I mean, we are still dealing with Harvey Weinstein's and Matt Lauer's like locking starlets into hotel rooms and assaulting them. And luckily, during the Me Too moment, we were able to say, that's not okay. You can't do that. (laughs) You have to get consent. Like you can't just sexually assault people, which is great. You know, that's very important to say. And I'm glad that we've gotten there. But it also uncovered this other host of sort of confusing situations where the sex or sexual encounters were consensual, and yet they were still bad or depressing or even traumatic. And this came out in stories like the sort of Aziz Ansari debacle where a woman accuses him of pressuring her into sex and says that their first date was the worst night of her life. It was a New Yorker story, Cat Person, which is about a college student who goes on a date with an older man and has sex that she doesn't want. And Cat Person especially was, I think, the most read piece of short fiction The New Yorker has ever published. And the fact that so many women and men were sharing this, we're like, yeah, that this represents me. This is a story that I would tell. This is normal. To me, it was shocking and really sad. And it suggested that we hadn't maybe come as far as we thought we would, or that something was just off in our sexual culture, if this was the expectation, if this was the norm. And so I went into first writing, you know, a number of columns on the question of Me Too, but also thinking about, well, what has gone wrong? Are there assumptions we've made in our sexual culture that mean that, you know, we're ending up in these situations or that have warped the culture? And then has our over-reliance on the question of consent, you know, well, I consented to this, so it's fine. Maybe that's not a high enough standard if consent is still leading us to these same bad places. And if so, what's the solution? Where do we go next? What's our next step? And this was all what was on my mind as I started just talking to people about these questions and then eventually writing the book. Well, Christine, you know this is the Faith Angle podcast. And so to lift up for you a a question that has more maybe to do with religion and and changing trends when it comes to religiosity, you know, there's a lot of noise right now about religion being on the decline in the country. And I wonder what you think about that as it sort of fits into the argument that that Kim just lifted up uh, before you. You know, you talk in the end of the book about the purity culture of the evangelicals, like the heritage you grew up in some, uh, about John Paul II's theology of the body by the Catholics, about Jewish view of creation and an intrinsic, you know, value and goodness of, of, of sex, about the Buddhists and, le- and letting go. But if in some sense, American religion is, is not as, if, religi- if religiosity is not as uh, robust as it was 20, 
20 or 30 years ago. How does that fit into the larger sort of call that you have for us at the end of the book? I wrote about and was written about in a number of publications regarding this book, and I published an excerpt in the New York Times recently that was headlined, Straight People Need Better Rules for Sex. I will say that I did not write that headline, (laughs) but the excerpt that was chosen, this adaptation, was about the fact that sort of a decline in, in norms, in shared understandings of what sex means, what we owe to each other, how to behave, that has led to more of these terrible encounters as opposed to the freedom that we all hoped it would. In some ways, you know, I think many thought that during the sexual revolution, by taking religion out of the equation, by making sure that people didn't feel repressed or shamed, by leaving them free to do whatever they wanted, you know, that kind of liberation and strictorelessness would make us happier. But instead, a lot of people feel really lost actually, because there is no standard outside of themselves to appeal to when they want to, say, turn down a particular act or say why something feels wrong. And my background is Christian. You know, I was born and raised evangelical in an evangelical-ish church, I should say. And then I converted to Catholicism in, in college. And one way that my faith influenced how I approached this question and writing this book, you know, was that the Christian tradition and the Catholic tradition have a long tradition of thinking about these bigger questions of what is meaningful, how do we relate to each other, what do we owe to each other, questions of human dignity and what sex is for. And I think part of my project was, you know, going to different religious traditions, not just my own, but also, as you mentioned, you know, I I quote from Jewish scholars, I quote from the Buddha, actually, Places with long traditions of, you know, thinking about what's real, what's meaningful in the world, and how to interact with each other in the long scale, and have kind of tested out these theories over centuries and millennia, and thinking, if discarding all of the rules hasn't worked for us, has seemingly made us less happy, and perhaps even less free than before, maybe it's worth looking back to our traditions, our religious faith, our texts, our understandings of what the world looks like in you know, seeing what is valuable and true there, too. Is there something to classical virtues like prudence or temperance or even chastity? Did our faith have something right when, you know, it was intuited that sex is sacred, that sex is meaningful, that we have to bear responsibility for each other, that some desires, you know, maybe desires that we have, but might not actually be good to fulfill, that giving into sort of every instinct may not actually be the right path. And faith has so much to say about that. Religious traditions have so much to say there. And although I think I was writing this book for young people, the majority of whom now are, you know, secular leaning, I think that many have kind of intuitions that there are some norms that could be helpful, that were helpful. And part of the task is reintroducing those in a way into the conversation. I wonder if some of our listeners might be wondering themselves why you do not go ahead and espouse the the biblical view of sex within the context of marriage, as laid out in Genesis, where God made them male and female, and they became one flesh, quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19, and then also in Paul, in uh, by Paul in Ephesians 5. I wonder if it is because of the harm that 
has taken place as a result of the purity culture of the 90s, the Christian subculture. And if that's the case, do you think that the biblical Christian view of sex can actually do more harm than good? That's a really interesting question and also a a complicated one. I mean, you know, as I said earlier, I was writing this book as, you know, rethinking sex, a provocation, as a provocation to conversations, to a rethinking of the assumptions that we hold about sex in our sexual culture. And I was hoping to provoke this reconsideration among, you know, young people who are more likely to be secular among people who were kind of living in the midst of a sexual culture that wasn't treating them well. And, you know, I said in another interview recently that, you know, I wasn't writing this book to reach my priest who like seems to be doing okay sexual culture wise. (laughs) I think the people who are practicing in their faith have kind of a, often have already thought through some of these questions and have like a strong take on what the sexual culture should look like. You know, I wanted to use this book, I think, to reach people who were not there, actually, who were just kind of coming to the realization that something was off. So in writing the book, I was, you know, I was writing for friends of mine who who don't go to church, who aren't Christian, who aren't practicing in any faith, but who still have an intuition of sorts and intuitions as we all do of kind of what sex should look like, what might be working or not working in our culture and meet them where they are and draw those questions out for them in a way that they could relate to. So in coming to, say, the conclusion that a higher standard for sex would be not just consent, which is an important floor, but not never was supposed to be a ceiling, and shifting that to willing the good of the other, which was, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, very much a, a sort of Christian proposition. I would start by asking people, you know, what do you think sex is. If you could describe an ideal sexual encounter or a sexual culture, like what would you want? And so many of them, A, intuit, you know, almost everybody intuits that sex is meaningful, that they do want something higher from it, which great. And then to describe what it is, what that looks like, nobody when asked that question says like, oh, I want somebody to perform this act or another, like use some technique. Everybody would say something like, well, I want empathy you know, the best encounter would look like someone listening to me or caring about me. Or as one woman said, you know, she was describing a very aggressive hookup that she was in. Can we not love each other for a single day? And that's where you can sort of begin to make those connections. Okay, what does love mean? And what might it mean in a different context to sort of bring people along? But I think by starting with, uh, well, Thomas Aquinas, who if you haven't heard of, you should already know, says this, is not really, would not have been the most sort of winsome approach in talking about these questions. I was really interested in sort of meeting people where they were and drawing them forward. Yeah, that was really striking to me too, uh, that, you know, you use the stories of people who have experienced loneliness, uh, pain, uh, unforeseen, you know, the woman who was being choked by her boyfriend, you know, the guys that are in these incels and they go and they they shoot up people in, in Parkland or they're part of problems in, in Toronto, you know, murders in Toronto. The downside, the ugly side of sex very much is uh, an argument for why the different case you're introducing is worth listening to. And I thought that was interesting. And I, I wonder actually if that's, you know, relevant to draw you out on a little bit, uh, Kim, you're a counselor. 
for goodness sakes. You wrote a book about boundaries, right? Uh, how do you see the downside of uh, today's uh, sexual culture sort of playing out if you're you know, at liberty in your own client relationships and, and offices? Did, you, did that track with what Christine was saying or not? Yes. And I hear over and over again from my clients about a heartache that they experience from broken relationships when they've been sexually active and then they are bonded with people that no longer are committed to them and their lives are worse because of it. And they're not flourishing as a result of those experiences. And I long for them to uphold a standard for themselves, to uphold boundaries for themselves that would protect their bodies and their souls. And Therapists love boundaries because it's better for their clients. Their clients live better lives when they uphold healthy boundaries. And I can't mention boundaries without evoking the grandfathers of of the modern boundaries movement, John Townsend and Henry Cloud. And uh, they mentioned that the Bible talks about boundaries over 300 times. And they're not inventing the concept, but they're just reminding us that the more we acknowledge that our feelings and our our beliefs and our desires are part of our personal property, that just like you want to have a, a fence around your home or a door to your home, you want to have boundaries around yourself. And you don't want to just let people come onto your property and do whatever they want. You want to decide what happens within your own space. And that's true physically and in your home and also with your with your body as well. I think that's really important. You know, and also to tack back to your your prior question about whether the excesses of purity culture might have lent themselves to, you know, a pushback from the idea of boundaries um or even a pushback for me like not necessarily invoking that very visibly in some parts of the book. I think one of the things that we that I've observed in our our sexual culture that's actually visible both in the secular world and in many Christian spaces too, is an almost weird sort of dichotomous boundary around sex that many young people are reacting against, but in an unhealthy way. I wish I had had more space to write about purity culture in the book, because that's such a specific instance that actually I do think a lot of people are pushing back against because they have the experience of maybe being brought up in sort of a purity culture environment where they're told that, oh, you know, we don't talk about sex. And then also, if you have a sexual encounter, you're a bad person. You know, you're a rose and somebody has plucked your petals, your tape that is no longer sticky because you've been stuck to too many things. And that has led people to feel a lot of shame around sex and around their desires. But at the same time, even as that that culture has minimized, you know, sex and having sex and talking about sex, there would also be this expectation like, you know, don't talk about sex, but you have to get married. And once you do, your sex life is going to be awesome. Sex is the best thing in the world. It's so great, but you can't have it now, <laughs> which left a lot of people feeling kind of confused and turned off and thinking, OK, this is not helpful to me. You know, sex means nothing. We're not supposed to think about it, but it also means everything, but I have to like flip this switch at some point and that didn't seem realistic. And so I think a lot of pushback from even religious people who are no longer religious or outsiders kind of viewing this particular, unfortunately, very sort of popular description of sex, especially in the 90s and 2000s, 
reacted against it to say like, no, I don't want any of, you know, all these rules in this repression. I want to be free to do, you know, whatever I want. I don't want to have to abide by this purity culture. But then they're finding that the opposite, that total freedom, you know, no boundaries, no fences at all, doesn't serve them either. So in the book, you know, part of what I'm thinking about is, okay, purity culture as, you know, instituted with the the true love weights, rings, and, you know, the Jonas Brothers and all of these things, maybe that wasn't working for people, that manifestation. But what truths are still there? You know, what truths are there still in what our tradition and faith has taught us about sex? You know, the idea that that sex is meaningful, that it is worthwhile to, you know, form relationship with other people. You know, that waiting might actually be good, <laughs> getting to know someone before you have sex with them. Understanding that this act has ramifications that are not just, you know, your personal pleasures and desires. Like, what are the truths that are still very visible that purity culture, at least religious tradition, got right? And, you know, in the book, there's actually... This is one of my sort of biggest, it's just like a giant footnote that my editor was like, do you really need this? And no, but I really wanted it there. Where I talk about the popular culture has a lot to say about how Christianity and tradition is sex-hating and repressive. But actually, one of the first things that distinguished the Christian sect in Rome from sort of the culture of Rome was a belief in human dignity a belief that every person had value as set in direct opposition to sort of the culture of porneia at the time in which, you know, certain citizens were non-citizens and, you know, you could buy them, you could have sex with them, you could treat them however you wanted because they didn't count. And Christianity was distinctive in that it said, actually, women do matter. Actually, even slaves matter. Actually, everybody has a human dignity worth respecting. And that idea, even just the idea of us all having a human dignity that must be respected, must be cared for, must be thought about even in the sexual realm is something that, you know, Christian tradition still very much has to offer to today's culture. Yes, I agree that both the Bible and Christian tradition have a very high view of the body. They're body positive, you might say. And we have resurrection bodies in heaven. And Song of Solomon in the early church was read more than any other book, I understand, <laughs> any other book in the Bible. There's a whole book of love poetry in the Bible. God made our bodies and they're good. He's made male and female and said that they were good. So I'm wondering along those lines, if there are ways to sort of address or mitigate the downsides of the purity culture and the effects that linger from it, but not give up the beauty of the waiting period in a dating relationship that allows a couple to get to know each other so richly and to work through conflicts and get to know whether or not they're really a good match for each other and discern whether they want to enter into a marriage relationship. Because once you introduce sex to the dating scene, you know, the dating relationship that you have, that becomes dominant and can take over. And every time there's a conflict, you can just have sex and feel better and not really work through the issues that you might have. And so that I think disproportionately disadvantages women because then the dating experiences become longer. And of course, women have biological clocks. And what we see is just this serial dating relationships that lead to one broken heart after the next. And then I think about the harm that can come from abstinence. And is that really worse? You know, is that not the better path? 
I think that it's worth asking that question. Like, I don't want to minimize that there are downsides to the purity culture from the 90s, but can we reduce the shame and the guilt and focus on grace and address that problem? And can we not expect that or not teach people that once you get married, you should just expect to have great sex and be more realistic about that there's going to be a learning curve and it's going to take time. But as you say in your book, research shows that couples that have been married for a long time have a higher rate of of sexual satisfaction. And so there is something there to look forward to that's legitimate. And so as a therapist, I wonder, is it not best for my clients to uphold this biblical worldview that the meaning of sex is the renewal of the marriage covenant? And when we honor it as such, then our lives will flourish, you know, we'll experience more human flourishing. One of the things that I use this book to do is kind of observe the state of the culture of our sexual culture as is. And one of the things that I noticed almost was that in the midst of, you know, a discussion of more freedom, you know, women and men having more freedom to have more partners, to have more sex, to to experience all the experiences that they can. You know, there's no pressure on them to settle down to be in a real, or rather, there should be less pressure. It would be better if there's less pressure on them to settle down, to enter a relationship. You know, and sex positivity writ very broadly as kind of an understanding that to be sex positive, to be a good modern person or a good feminist is to, you know, enjoy trying every different sex act and to not have, you know, feelings for your partner and just to be open to any sort of adventure you're offered. It's described as freedom. You know, it's shown to young people as freedom, but it actually is almost the enforcing of a just a new and different stigma. If before you were told, don't think about sex, don't talk about sex, don't have it. Now it's like, okay, well, you have to be having sex. You have to be, you know, sex positive. You have to be out there and game for anything, having all of these experiences. Otherwise there's something wrong with you. And there's a section in the last chapter of the book where I talk about how this almost this reverse stigma can be just as harmful in some situations as, you know, the prior don't have sex stigma. And I talk about these interviews with virgins who are adults and are not having sex. And so many of them describe themselves in in terms of, you know, like I'm a successful person, I work in finance, whatever, but I haven't had sex in it. I feel like if I told anyone that, they would think I was some sort of repressed Victorian (laughs) or somebody described themselves as, you know, like, I feel like girls see me as kind of a neophyte and like nobody wants to deal with that. And so almost the, the opposition now is that like, well, if you aren't having sex, you're a repressed neophyte, you know, Bible beating virgin and who wants to be that? And so there's a stigma on that end as well. And I want to push back against that. And I do that in the book. I quote from the Stoic Epictetus, actually, who says, when you receive an invitation to pleasure, pause. And I talk about the idea of reclaiming the pause, of noting that in choosing not to go along with, you know, maybe this new rule or with just whatever experience is on offer for you, even if it is very attractive in the moment, being able to do that is freedom. Being able to sort of claim yourself and claim agency to not go that far, to wait, can actually be a very good thing. 
And in fact, if you are trying to really will the good of the other person in a relationship, to will the good in sex for for yourself, to will an understanding of like what sex means in the larger sense, then actually you do need to take time to figure out what the good really is. If you're trying to will the good of your partner, you have to know who the partner is as an individual, as a person to will their particular good, which takes time. An inducement to to willing the good also implies an understanding of what the good actually is. So you actually have to take a step back and think about what is sex? What is meaningful? Like, what is this relationship? What is the best thing that I'm trying to create here? And again, waiting gives you space to do that. The best thing might not always be to rush ahead. One thing that I sometimes tell young men is, can you love your girlfriend enough not to have sex with her? You know, because they always say, well, I love my girlfriend, so I want to sleep with her. But considering that around one third of babies born in the country every year are unwanted and the burden that that is on mothers and the psychological effect on the children that are born unwanted, there's a risk there to a woman when a man has sex with her. And can we think through the potential consequences of sleeping together outside of, of wedlock? I love the quote you have by Wendell Berry on page 124, speaking to this topic of, of freedom and restraints. He says, seeking to free sexual love from its old communal restraints, we have freed it also from its meaning, its responsibility, and its exaltation, and we have made it more dangerous. I wonder if I could jump quickly into that question too, because I think this concept of freedom and restraint, uh, freedom and, and is it constraint, restraint? It's freedom and pushing the brakes, right? Like throughout much of the book, you get there through pain in a number of chapters, and you argue for the good sort of from the disordered, and you get there at the end very much from making a case, you know? But it occurs to me that along the stats that Kim just read and thinking about, you know, a lot of insights about contemporary culture right now are that we have become less social, less engaged, you know? So teen sex is down because teen dating has also dipped dramatically. There are fewer divorces today because there are fewer marriages. There are fewer abortions because there are fewer pregnancies. There are fewer out-of-wedlock births because there are fewer births in general. Fewer teenagers are dying in car accidents because fewer teens are getting their driver's license. There's less social disorder, we might say, because there's less uh, social life. And I wonder if that is part two, uh, part also of the disordered sexual culture uh, you're shining light on. You know, I was talking to a friend about this book. I've had (laughs) so many conversations about sex with friends recently, far more perhaps than the average person might expect, but I did write this book, I guess. And he said, you know, I think this book is ostensibly about sex. But it also kind of seems to be about liberalism and individualism, our individualistic culture writ large. It's a book about kind of our understanding of freedom and what it should mean. And I was like, you're reading really deeply into this, but also you're right. I talk a lot in this book, and I think it's thread through many of Rethinking Sex's chapters, the current social understanding that we have developed over time, that it's better to be autonomous that it's better to be freewheeling individuals who are not tied down by relationships or emotions or connections to other people because we want to be like free and flexible to move around for our jobs or get better jobs or you know 
make our choices and do whatever we want to do. And this is visible in the way that we live our life, yes, but also in the way that, you know, people are dating and having encounters. You know, the sort of understanding among many young people that actually the best sort of person to be in a sexual realm is the chill girl or like the cool guy who has sex, but doesn't have feelings about it, you know, doesn't get overly emotional, doesn't ask for, you know, a relationship or commitment can just do it all by themselves. And so many of the young people I talk to feel sort of pressure from the outside culture to align with that norm. But then what they really want, like, you know, when I would ask, okay, what, what do you want from sex? Like, what are you trying to get out of this? They would say, well, like, I, I want to connect with someone. I want to be loved. <laughs> I want a relationship. And the mismatch between almost what they feel they're allowed to say and what they actually really want feels really strong. And also, you know, the ways that they're encouraged to sort of pursue what they want are often at odds with what they actually want. So when I talk about, there's a whole chapter basically on on dating apps, um, like Tinder and Bumble and Hinge, all of these swiping apps that have become so much more popular just over the last decade. And the thing about them is ostensibly you're swiping to meet someone and form a connection, but the apps themselves are set up in such a way that you begin to treat people as commodities. They're just like a face among many, among the crowds and you're not accountable to them and they're not accountable to you. And that doesn't actually, you know, push people towards an understanding of taking responsibility to the other person or owing something to anyone else, or even, you know, because these are sort of relationships divorced from a web of community, you know, you're not meeting through family or friends. People don't feel pressure to even act appropriately. And that sort of warps the sexual culture too. And so when we you know, this fetishization of sort of freedom and distance and unemotionality is actually making people really sad. And I think, Josh, like the, you're totally right. We are living in what Kate Julian from The Atlantic has called a sex recession. And we're actually at a 30-year low in sexual activity, in the number of people getting married, in the number of people forming partnerships. And young people are actually leading the charge in this, or maybe I should say they're beating the retreat, actually. And to me, that is not, it's worrying not because, you know, there's there's less teen sex and like, that's a bad thing. Actually, I think that's probably a good thing. But what it really says when you talk to people is that they want a relationship, maybe they want commitment, they want to build a life with somebody, but the current culture makes them feel like they can't do it. It makes it harder to find and so people are opting out of even trying, and then they are ending up lonely. And it is really loneliness that kills, you know, as we have seen over the past couple of years. And that's the most alarming part of this is almost not the sex recession part so much as the connection recession, as the the lack of ties and the loss of ties. And as you said at one point in the book that, you know, porn use is so up, you know, and yet these are often men in their 20s and early 30s who don't feel like they can ask a girl out. They, they, can't, they can't actually make contact at the coffee shop or at the bar. There's a, a high disjunct. And one more thing, and then Kim, you get back in. You say late in the book uh, from, the, from the Atlantic that there are something like 80% of those who would go to a priest for an exorcism 
did so because they experienced uh, sexual abuse. I thought that was a particularly harrowing statistic. The idea was that, you know, sexual abuse is a deep thing. It stays with you regardless of how, how lightly we, we view uh, sexuality in our time. It stays with you and you need growth healing. What was that about? Yeah, you've hit on a really important thing. I mean, that was in a chapter entitled, you know, Sex is Sacred. And in that chapter, I talk about an interview that I did with a young woman who was telling me about her sexual assault and how it came about and what came from it. And in talking about that, thinking through that aloud with me, she said at one point, you know, it would be one thing if he had just like punched me in the face or stolen my phone or something, but sex is different. Sex is a just like a meaningful thing that we share with another person. And having that taken from me feels just manifestly different from any other sort of assault that could have happened. And in thinking through that, you know, this question of what makes sex, sex, like, is it, it is meaningful, it is sacred. And we have an intuition that, you know, as she did, that sex is different. And if it is different, then we have a responsibility to treat it as such to treat it with care, to hold ourselves to higher standards when it comes to sex, if it really is, you know, as it clearly is, as everyone seems to intuit in their lives, this very separate and distinct thing. I think what we're really talking about is what is the good life? If you take even a farther step back, what are we all really looking for? And what is at the the heart of of our quest? You know, what, what is our deepest human longing? And um, without a vision, the people will perish. And one of my favorite images in scripture is when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a tree and the birds come and nest in its branches. And to me, that's an image of community. And if you think of the nests as you know households and families, and anyone can come and, and any bird can come and land on the branches of the tree. And that's a place to live together in harmony. And in that picture, you know, sex within those particular households then is a renewal of those commitments of becoming one with one another within the households. And everyone can then flourish in that environment when there's that order and the beauty of the order. God is a God of order. You know, he put boundaries on the chaos in Genesis and the stars have a beautiful order to them in the universe. And he wants us to live in the context of that sort of order. And then our, our lives flourish when we do so. And if we ignore, I think, the purpose of marriage as God designed it, and if we ignore the boundaries that will help us to flourish, then we'll end up crashing into those boundaries. And we'll end up destroying the environment in which we live. And and there will be great hardship and chaos that I see in the lives of my clients and and friends who have, for example, slept with their boyfriends over time and then ended up having unwanted pregnancies and abortions and then living for decades with the grief of that experience. And God's grace is right there to heal them. And these same friends are flourishing because of God's grace. But did they have to go through that? You know, and so I know that the this is what I'm saying is very countercultural. I completely understand that, and uh, it's not commonly said. But I think that there is still a reason to hold up the vision of monogamy and the beauty that it is. And I think it's it's ultimately the heart of romance to wait for your true love. I think that is one of the really 
big questions that, you know, Rethinking Sex is trying to bring to the conversation and bring back to the public sphere. We have increasingly sort of pushed questions of ethics and morality and, you know, what is the good? What is the good life? What is flourishing? To be private conversations, to be conversations that you have only at church or only in your family, not something that we talk about, you know, out loud in public. But sex, I think, because it's such, it's something that, you know, kind of everyone has in common in a way that everyone has an interest in. And because, you know, as we just talked about, you know, it does feel intuitively sacred and meaningful for many people. It can be a big component of human flourishing. And so to actually get that right, we have to be able to have conversations about Again, like, what does that mean? What does sex mean? What does human flourishing look like in the context of our sexual lives? And how do our sexual lives influence our flourishing on so many other levels? And then, you know, rethinking sex is a, is a provocation because it's seeking to kind of push people to ask and reconsider the questions, you know, are there some assumptions that our secular culture has given us, that media culture has given us, you know, perversions even of what the feminist movement hoped for that have taught us things about how we will receive human flourishing through sex that are wrong. You know, do we have our understandings wrong? And if so, how do we correct them in common? And yeah, these are the questions that I'm trying to get at. These are questions about how to live a good life and what it takes to you know, enact those boundaries and those strictures in our own lives. It's not just about consent, right? About getting permission to do a thing. We also have to ask ourselves, what is the good thing? You know, we have to have a higher standard than, you know, not just what's allowed, but what is actually good? What contributes to our flourishing? And so I'm hoping that this book adds to the conversation. Maybe one exit question from me as just, you know, in what sense is this book unfinished? You have a lot of data, you have a lot of personal stories, you have a lot of stories from friends and people that you did research alongside. It's very thorough, it's a, it's a wonderful book. We encourage picking up a copy and, and having at it. But it is a rethinking, it's a reimagining, it's a call to action at the end. And is it purposeful that it's sort of a little bit over to you and unfinished? And will you read it differently in 25 or 50 years? I'm sure I will read it differently in 25 or 50 years. I mean, hopefully everyone will as we come to new realizations and new understandings of what the good looks like and how we share those. I mean, writing this book was almost definitely kind of a first author's gambit because anybody who's ever written a book before would know not to say like, oh yeah, just sex. I'm just going to fix that in my book. Anyone with any experience would be like, oh no, I need to, let's you know shrink our horizons a little bit. That's how editors get first-time writers, I think. And I hope my editor is listening to this. It doesn't do the next person like they did me. But there's so much that, you know, was left out of this book almost that we could talk more about, about what sex education would look like or should look like there. You know, that conflict is happening even now. You know, to talk even more deeply about how we define the good, what rules should be instituted and, and where, about, you know, the definitions of man and woman and how those tie into how we think about sex. Even though, you know, there's a chapter on that there, there's so much more that could be said. But again, this is a provocation to conversation because I think we also have to figure out some of these rules, some of these boundaries and norms in common because 
you know, as you said, we we live together. We're part of a society. And for individuals to flourish, our society has to flourish and everyone has to take part. So when we sort of put forth discussions about sex, about what we think the rules should be, they also have to be, you know, corrigible by other people. I think one of the one of the real reasons for the sexual revolution and the feminist movement was the idea or the feeling that, you know, a male hierarchy had set the rules and women were not valued, their voices were not invited to the table in sort of setting up how society should work around questions of sex and gender. So if we are to kind of rethink the norm, we have to make sure to bring all of those voices to the table and actually listen to people who might have been marginalized or, you know, hurt by conversation in the past, listen to where we are in in kind of the modern day and move forward together from there. So in some ways, I, I haven't answered, you know, the question. It's a provocation. It's not a prescription. And I'm hoping that this is a push to get more people asking these questions so that we can take steps further towards, you know, fully figuring it out together. Christine, that was just so beautifully said. And thank you for encouraging us to really think deeply about what it means to love one another. I think that's such an honorable mission and your a beautiful person with just a brilliant mind and this was just a masterfully written piece and I hope it's very widely read. Faith Angle exists to connect mainstream journalists with religion scholars, practitioners, and clerics around topics that matter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.